In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today, Carl Johan Kalleman, was born in Stockholm, Sweden, in 1950, which in the sacred calendar corresponds to the fifth Jaguar. Curiously, this is also the exact midpoint of the month dedicated to the Roman goddess Maya. His hometown of Stockholm is fairly remote from the jungles of Guatemala, but these were some signs that he encountered that maybe he had something to accomplish there. He first became interested in the Maya and the calendar during a trip to Mexico and Guatemala in 1979. Here, he fell in love with the people and also had a profound feeling that this was his spiritual home on earth. And somehow it seemed that the purpose of his life was linked to these people and their calendar that he had now become fascinated by. And this was long before the Mayan calendar had become a matter of widespread interest. And has he subsequently read in Michael Coe's book about the mayor that their calendar would come to an end in the year 2011. And in this, it sparked an imagination. His books, The Mayan Calendar, and most recently, The Purposeful Universe, have received worldwide acclaim for his work and research in this area. Carl Johan Kalleman joins me in this two-program series, talking to his life and work, exploring the Mayan civilization and their calendar. Welcome today to In Discussion, my guest, Carl Kalleman. Carl, welcome to you. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoy being on this show. As we progress with our series, I'd like to, on this first program, do a brief overview of your life and work. Can we go back first to your early years, your recollections of childhood uh, growing up in Stockholm? Yes. Well, it wasn't as simply as saying that I grew up in in Stockholm. Um, You might say I had a tremendously confusing early childhood. My parents got divorced essentially when I was born, and so my mother wasn't quite able to take care of me, and so I was passed around by a couple of di- to a couple of different relatives in in my first very early years. You know, in a sense, uh, quite difficult, I think, emotionally for a, a small child like that, really not having very much. Uh, grounding relationships and so forth. But, I'm, you know, I've thought about this later uh, in terms of what could be the good side. <laughs> and I think that, you know, this tremendous confusion that I actually um, uh, grew up with, especially when I was very young, it really sort of spurred me on later to to understand things. Why, why am I here and, you know, what... Sooner, I mean, when when I was uh, seven or so, my life became a little bit more stable, and and I got to live with my mother and my sister in in Stockholm. I I already at a very young age became interested in history, so to speak. I I, I started to wonder where 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 do we what's the background, so to speak? How did we end up here and? Um, and uh, I, I started to ask these kind of questions. Uh, but I was not a child, you know. Uh, as you know, today I'm <clears throat> I sort of have quite a few spiritual aspects of my work. But I was not one of those children, I, I would say, that would, you know, speak to angels or see things that others couldn't see or, or something like that. I was more approaching this quite confusion as i mentioned trying to get the the facts 
the 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 historical background uh, and so forth. That's what I must say about my very early childhood years. They were very unstructured uh, and, and very very confusing. I must say. This is not uncommon, is it, in people? When I first entered the studio. 13 or 14 months ago, unconsciously or consciously, I decided to take my guests back to their childhood. I'm not quite sure to this day what the reasoning for that was, but it certainly turned out to be a pivotal part of the narrative. There is something in us that is a downloading from our ancestors, a downloading from the traumas that we go through, particularly in childhood, uh, if indeed we go through any traumas. And these are things that we have to contend with. And then in some way, we talk about wisdom. We talk about the irony of life having to learn by our mistakes. But it's much deeper than that, is it not? There is definitely this downloading that we have to work with, uh, particularly when we get into our later years from those effects of childhood and earlier years, and also the downloading in a cellular uh, fashion that we have to consider that we've inherited. Yeah, and I, I you know, if I look upon myself, uh, I think there was a long period in my, you might say, my uh, my younger adulthood, when I sort of looked upon some of these events like myself as an, a victim of them and so forth. But over time, uh, I think you have to deal with them in, in such a way that you see the, the, the good sides of it or what it has propelled you to do, what kind of downloads that it, um, you, you have uh, done in order to to compensate for it, and and uh, in that way you you can you can go away from that kind of a uh, you might say victim mentality that um, I, I certainly have had in in my early adulthood. Uh, but there there is um, you know increasingly when you get uh, into adulthood, I, I I think you see there is a purpose to. Uh, whatever happened, and then you can always uh, put the emphasis on, on that. I think this is an important point that I'd like to travel to at the beginning of our second program to see how the Mayan society and other civilizations approach this. Uh, but meanwhile, what are your recollections of society in Sweden compared to the country now how do you see that it has changed and indeed the whole world has changed but are there any specific areas of life that have changed that are marked to you or very present to you when you travel back there well when i i have been watching these movies from the 50s when when i was a child and there is some, a lot of ingmar berman movies from that uh, period of time and it's really hard to believe that this is the this was a place where a time that, where I was actually living and experiencing life because it it looks like the 1800s or something like that. P people are so um, th there's no technological sophistication. People are so innocent in a way when you look at these uh, uh, movies from that time. And Swedish society has has uh, changed tremendously. If nothing else, that in, when I was a child, it was uh, a very homogeneous uh, population in terms of the origins. Of course, there's always been a sort of a, a low level of Im immigration, but people were basically Swedes, so to speak. And uh, the first time I started to see black people on the streets in Stockholm was probably mid-60s or something like that. So unusual. And now it is, uh, you know, now you might have read there was the suicide bomber from Iraq in, in, in Stockholm a, a couple of weeks ago. And, and of course, people are from everywhere. It's, it's just a tremendous mixture that that's happened everywhere, of course. And, and it's, it's not the, the kind of structure of society that it used to, to have. It, it, everything has changed tremendously. But especially when you actually 
when you leave your own memories and actually go to see a film, what the way it looked like, it, it's, uh, it looks like the 1800s, or at least how I conceive of the 1800s. And, and that was actually the time when I was there. <laughs> you had actually predicted my next question of whether it had created in itself, like many countries, a multicultural society, and no doubt it has. I am going to return again to this point in the second program. You had an influence around your birth or around your very early childhood of the fifth jaguar a brief description of that if you may well it's something i <clears throat> i only came to uh, realize uh, much later uh, i mean when nobody told my me when i was a child that i had been born on the day if i jaguar but then you might say my first encounter with the maya it was in 1979. I decided to go on a journey to Mexico and Guatemala. And uh, it was sort of a backpacker, explorative. It was felt very exotic at that time to go to Mexico because this is pre-charter flights. And uh, I ended up in Mexico City, uh, unbeknownst to myself, on uh, El Dia de las Muertes, the Day of the Dead. In, in this, again, talking about confusion, uh, confusion, millions of people were, were going in different direction, having visited their ancestors on, on their cemeteries, having uh, had these meals together with their um, ancestors. And it's sort of, I, I just uh, came in in the middle of the night uh, into a city uh, on the other side of the world where skeletons were hanging from the light poles and uh, right into this and um, uh, was very fascinated and uh, then that started a, a journey of uh, which is in a sense was one of my happiest uh, journeys in my life because I, just by being there in, in, in Mexico and encountering uh, natives. I, I just felt, oh wow, there is a purpose to my life. I didn't know at that point what that might be. But it wasn't just that I felt these recollections of uh, uh, when I visited the pyramids in Teotihuacan or in, in, in Chichen Itza. Uh, it also seemed that there was something that natives, the Maya, would see in me. I was this tall Swede walking around in this uh, uh, um, wooden shoes, making myself much, much taller than, than the other uh, people there. And, and so they, they would take note of me. And then they would come up to me sometimes with, with this, you know, small little presence uh, and uh, said, uh, this is for you, and disappear. And then... Uh, that, that made a, a tremendous impression on me. Um, it, I, I had no idea what they saw, but I just got the feeling they, 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 they see something here in me. And I came back to the laboratory in, in Stockholm, uh, you know, just feeling that I don't know what it is, but, but I, here there, there must be a purpose to my life. And uh, it, it continued like that. And uh, <clears throat> then it took me uh, quite a long time um, there was the, the book of um, uh, Jose Arguelles in uh, 1987, uh, The Mayan Factor, uh, which had an important uh, influence on me because basically what that book uh, proposed was that there is something to the Mayan calendar and uh, trying to make a spiritual uh, interpretation of it and uh, that, that helped me connect. And uh, for ever since I visited Mexico the first time, I did feel this is the track. This is the track I'm going to, to walk on primarily, even though I still stayed in science maybe 13 years or so. Or so that, that's, that became my track. And then it came at some point, I don't know exactly when, but I, I did uh, find out what my Mayan birthday was. And that happened to be a jaguar, uh, which is, you know, it's indisputable that in, in the Mayan tradition, uh, there is something called the jaguar prophets. So it, it is, the, the whole idea of, of the jaguar is to be a, a night animal, an animal that sees in the dark. And uh, 
So I, I felt, okay, maybe I'm somebody who sees something in the dark. Then, you know, th then I started to see, well, it's not only this five Jaguar, it's also, hmm, I'm born in Stockholm exactly noon, May 15, which is the exact midpoint of this month that the Romans would, would call Maya, uh, the, the goddess of spring, basically. So I thought, oh, this is Maya plus Maya. Uh, and and it's just to me anyway. It, it sort of gave me some kind of a further feeling that oh, the, the, this is really what what I'm about. This is why I'm I'm born on this particular day. It's because it, it's related to this purpose that I have now started to experience. You obviously returned to Sweden following this great adventure. Do you consider, looking back, that perhaps you were traveling at that stage in a different world, in a special world, in a world that you had not been in before and that you had taken back with you and remained in? Yes. I, I would put it exactly in those terms. Um, I brought back some kind of a, what shall I say, a envelope. <laughs> around myself uh, um, pr from, from the Maya land and uh, the, not only some kind of you might say spiritual envelope or, or, or so but um, I, I brought back uh, very intentionally uh, a lot of Mayan textiles uh, uh, that, that I would uh, have in my rooms uh, to, to keep reminding me of, of this particular aspect of myself that I was uh, reconnecting to. And uh, even if I would go out and, and do uh, quite a, you know, regular Swedish work at the university, you might say I, I would always come back to sleep in this enveloped by these uh, textiles with these Mayan memories included in them. When you were at school in your early education, was it well-defined in your mind where you wished to go? Were you already thinking about science, mythology, cosmology, or were you still open-minded until this time that you've just talked about? When I was in high school, I, I uh, tried to have as broad interest, or I did have br very broad interest. I mean, it, I was seriously interested in, in both languages and mathematics and, and uh, pretty much everything in, in between. Uh, I do recall that I sat with a couple of friends uh, in the last year of high school and, and we were all sort of chatting about, you know, what will we be doing in 30 years from now or something like that. And uh, then I, I suggested or I threw out that I would probably be studying some ancient language and uh, th that gave me there was some kind of a sense in me that there was something here i mean not at that point i had no idea that this would be mayan but then i i, I was quite confused during my university years until i started a, a graduate student uh, study in science and uh, when I felt very uh, much at home, I, I still like the people of sci science. And uh, uh, I, I really felt that, that that gave me some kind of a grounding to be in that environment. And uh, um, it, it's something I still, uh, my wife is a scientist here at the University of Washington, uh, and I still uh, very much enjoy those uh, contacts that I had. Interestingly, you just talked about language. You didn't mention symbology. Uh, many of the ancient civilizations, such as the Dogon in North Africa, were completely driven by symbology. Were you already getting a sense then of the differences of the way that civilizations, of the way that their priests thought and wrote and charted their story, charted their narrative, and the differences between symbology and writing? No, this is not something I, I think I have ever uh, gone deeply into. To tell you the truth, I don't feel I, I respond very strongly to 
symbols. I hear other people, they, they write, show these symbols, they, they, they work with symbols, and, and it takes on a deep meaning to them. They, they sort of, their being resonates with these, what you might say, symbology. And for some reason, th that's not how I work uh, or so, so function. To me, symbols, uh, no, they, I, 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 I don't go into them. What was the reasoning behind traveling to Mexico and Guatemala over traveling to places like Egypt and perhaps studying Greek mythology, studying that part of the world? I really have no idea. <laughs> it, it just uh, appeared when I was at the University of Stockholm. There appeared on a bulletin board some uh, note uh, saying if you want to study Spanish, stay in a Mexican family, you know, go to this school. And I thought, well, that sounds good. And I sent them some kind of a deposit. I never heard back from them, but I still went over. And it just seemed to be on that line. Of course, I mean, I took an interest in all kinds of history, Greek and Egyptian as well. But for some reason, this what was what set me off. And I, I'll never know why. Except for the fact that maybe I am five Jaguar and, and uh, have, have some kind of a spiritual affinity to begin with for, for these kind of things. While at university, and this is a very important point that I would like to resonate with, toxicology, hugely important today. That toxicology that you learned at university, what did you take away from that and what are you learning today about the importance of toxicology in terms of the human body? Yeah, and you know, I think I, it, it was tremendously valuable that, and even if it sort of has a very narrow focus by definition, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And the value is the whole thing about that when you're trained as a scientist, you are trained to generate evidence, you're trained to do experiments to test your ideas. What happens is that, you know, all, all scientists, uh, more or less, uh, are guided to their hypotheses uh, through uh, their intuition. And quite often you do find that your intuition is, is right on target and that, that um, you know, you, you're basically just uh, uh, designing and, and verifying through your experiments the, the original intuition that you had. But it also meant that many times when I found out that my intuition was not infallible, that the um, experiments that I did did not always verify uh, my intuition. And that that's quite an important uh, experience that I think people that have not been professionally in science may, may not have had. You know, I can think of people that are more like, uh, uh, like channelers or so forth and just downloading whatever comes to them, but never having to confront their ideas uh, with uh, the actual reality checks that experiments and so forth uh, will give. And so th this is uh, something uh, in a general sense that I felt uh, I'm very happy to have gone through, to, to have experienced that, yes, intuition is, is the only guidance ultimately that you have, but you're never certain. Um, uh, until you really have the verification. Some kind of a humbleness or some kind of a caution that comes out of all that whole experience. This is a hugely important point that is being raised here. Intuition, intentionality, the connection there. How does the human mind, how does the human heart cross over from that intuition to that intentionality and back again to arrive at certain strong certified information and intent that's a big question and i'm not sure if i have an any kind of a, a immediate uh, answer uh, i i think it's it's a matter of being uh, very much sort of going back and forth 
in in your mind being sort of going from your intuition to the intention and to the verification be willing not to just be stuck in 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 the set ideas you have and yet keep uh, keep the the basic ideas you have uh, from your intuition uh, in in some kind of a uh, very difficult uh, to define manner uh, not be completely stuck in in your uh, preconceived thoughts and and yet follow up uh, do what you can to 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 trust your intuition to come to some conclusion let me cover this very briefly because again this is going to come up in more depth later in our next program you leave university you are obviously working in what I would call the establishment or the academia call it what you will you then become interested in the Mayan calendar initially when was it that your conclusions on its end came about it always seems amazing to me talking to so many scholars so many researchers that they talk about calendars history civilization without an end thinking back to that it, it must have been a very abrupt wake-up call when you came across the main calendar and actually realized that they had predicted not an end time necessarily but a very changing time how looking back now how do you view that yeah well <clears throat> when i was in that it was again it was already with that first encounter in 1979 and i should say 1979 the late 70s is really the time when the first people in the modern world were starting to propose that there was some fundamental hidden truth to the Mayan calendar. I'm, I'm thinking about people like Tony Scherer, uh, Peter Balin, Frank Waters. You might say they're different kinds of anthropologists that would go down to Mexico and Guatemala and coming back with the idea that there is something fundamental here that, that it seems we have missed. And I was then in Mexico in 79, about the time when these people that started to write books about it. And I was more of a tourist, but also still very interested in history generally. So I bought this book by uh, the, the, uh, the great Mayanist uh, Michael Cole, who uh, called the Maya, and uh, that book told me that the Mayan calendar would come to an end in 2011. And I got the feeling from, from being there and from what I, I saw at the, 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 what I experienced, I should say, at, at the pyramids, that they, they are right. They, there is something here that they understand that, that we have missed. And uh, uh, it took me a long time then from that point until I was able to articulate this in, in my books and, and so forth. But I got that as an immediate feeling. And I already in, in 1979, when I came back to Stockholm, I actually gave uh, some talks mentioning this uh, end to the calendar, uh, sort of as an interesting curiosity mainly, but not fully. I, I, I did have a, already gained a, a fundamental respect for the thinking of these ancient peoples. But at that point, there was no way of, of sort of finding the... Uh, what this could mean, and and uh, um, that was uh, in 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 the future still. Michael Coe, he really set a precedent, did he not, with his work? Would you say that he was really the first to start uncovering uh, the Mayan civilization and their calendar? No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, there is a long prehistory. Uh, he may be the sort of the uh, uh, the uh, most senior Mayanist of our time, but there's a long history of of uh, uh, researchers, like especially the Englishman 
Sir Thompson, Eric Thompson, who was dominating the field, I would say, the 30s and the 40s, I, I, I would probably be my estimate. And more recently, I think uh, Linda Shealy at the University of Texas really uh, brought uh, in very interesting aspects of, of uh, uh, interpreting the, the Mayan culture. I also think very important was uh, Yuri Knorosov, who was this uh, Russian uh, scholar who uh, actually cracked the, the Mayan language, the, the code. He, he the one uh, who, who taught us how to read the, uh, the Mayan glyphs. But there's a long, uh, there's a long um, row of uh, uh, predecessors, of a researcher. And I think what, what you, when you study the, the Maya uh, and, and the per people that have been researching them, they are very often, you know, if I, would, if I may use the word oddballs, they, they are not your traditional academics. There is, uh, there is something in, in the Mayan culture that, that so easily get out of the normal scientific framework that you have to be a little bit of an oddball uh, to approach it, even if you still are basically within the framework of, of academia. Now, in 1986, you are involved in environmental health in Seattle's University of Washington. I'd like to ask you about that. You are now becoming ever more interested in the Mayan civilization and their calendar. In talking to others in academia, in the scientific establishment, how do they resonate? Do you get any reluctance or are people generally interested in your research and your work? Yeah, that's, um, that's quite different in, in different countries, you might say. Initially, when I you might say I uh, dropped out of my scientific career then uh, at a certain point uh, when uh, I, I decided to devote myself entirely to the Maya. And I uh, retained my contacts and, uh, uh, and friendship with, with several previous colleagues, but uh, initially there was really no, uh, no interest in, in what I was doing. It, it was not something that they could... Uh, uh, relate to and and so the the relationship remained in, in the format that it had originally developed but it, i I see some some change you know I was very happy um, I, I was back in Sweden around Christmas and uh, uh, now my most recent book there uh, has been published there uh, the purposeful universe and uh, I've had quite some um, interactions with my 86-year-old at this point, original uh, mentor in uh, organic chemistry, and uh, he's really taken it to heart. Uh, the book I've, I've I've written, and and he has he sort of looks into the the scientific community in in Sweden and uh, picks out the the ones that he considers open to this information and contacts them and and sends them a book and. So uh, at this point, there are a few that you know are willing to talk to me on uh, about what I'm doing. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. Sweden, of course, is a very rational or secular society, and so uh, originally there were very few in the scientific community there that would entertain any kind of uh, higher intelligence in, in the universe, but. Uh, when I moved to the States then in 1986, as you mentioned, I, I did find that there is another kind of uh, person here, uh, not everyone, but there is a sort of a, a group of, of, of scientists that will also entertain ideas uh, that there is a higher purpose, that, that life has a, um, that there is a guidance from a higher intelligence and, and, and such ideas. And that remains uh, true for, for the United States. This would be indicative, in my mind, of a society of scientists, uh, whether they're uh, quantum scientists, uh, traditional scientists, or new scientists, that are beginning to look at what used to be considered esoteric, and perhaps sitting up now and looking at 
these civilizations far more seriously. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. Just to, as an aside, maybe, but yesterday I, I saw a, a, um, a new article written by Luc bon Montagnier. Uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He was the discovery of the AIDS virus. And um, um, he is obviously, and so I'm, I'm emphasizing this is a, a significant scientist of our time, has done quite some important discoveries. And he, he now has published re an article uh, that was quoted that talks about the teleportation of DNA. Um, in other words, how structure of, of DNA can go between test tubes uh, without any material exchange. This is really, I mean, it's very consistent with, it, with my own ideas, uh, and whether they are consistent with my ideas or not, it still points to, to quite some uh, break with, with traditional materialist thinking. It is like there, there are waveforms creating structures in the universe that are uh, operating uh, um, not through direct material interactions, but are sending out imprints that can spread, and um, you know it has a little bit of the uh, the the hundred monkey mechanism or morphogenetic fields. But it, it, it's 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 very interesting that that a person of that um, scientific stature uh, goes out with this kind of uh, information at this point. And this is uh, another issue that I'd like to return to in our second of the two programs. Briefly talking about the World Health Organization, you were involved in this research in cancer. I had posed this question to you in our pre-program notes and had asked you about the relationship between cancer today, the Mayan teachings, and also your thoughts on how holistic methods are working with cancer patients today. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I don't follow the field, so to speak, in terms of how effective the, the methods are. My own approach today uh, would be quite uh, different. Um, and uh, in other words, I think that, uh, that what what maintains the integrity of a body, what mean, maintains the health of a body, is sort of a, a, a field, a, a waveform uh, that that we uh, that we are. Whenever somehow this expression of this waveform, light body, some people might say, but whenever this is disturbed that is the risk of, of, of cancer emerging. And th that would put the origin of this particular um, uh, disease uh, at another level, so to speak. But, but I'm still uncertain uh, as to how, how effective uh, methods have been developed by alternative uh, practitioners. I, 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 I'm not knowledgeable enough about it. But I think that as a basic theoretical model, these ideas that the body is an energy system is a more valid uh, model than those that are upheld as, um, by, by mainstream uh, medicine. Do you think that it's a good direction for holistic medicine to assure that the patient today knows that cancer is not necessarily a disease but part of life and as easy as we can find it uh, through uh, these energies and through intentionality we can also disrupt it and delete it out of our system yeah i think um, you know i think first of all you have to have the if you get this disease uh, or, or some form of it you know, it's, it's fundamental to, to have some uh, faith that, that it will be healed and, uh, uh, and to, to, to work with this. But if it's sufficient, it, it's, I, I would not be qualified to, to say. But of course, if, you know, if you have a negative uh, idea about the, 
the role of the other disease, then 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 it's not as hopeful uh, to begin with. That that's that's not a very good starting point. 1993, you returned to Sweden, and you are still looking at cancer. You're looking at the Mayan teachings in ever more depth, and you're discussing these energy shifts, and you're looking more at the calendar as time goes by. What are your recollections of that period of returning to Sweden? Well, yes, um, it's, it's, it was very important that I did because at that point I had been, as I mentioned, I had read uh, Arguella's work in 1986, uh, or oh, sorry, 87, and uh, which sort of outlines an idea that there is a relationship between the different energies of the different time periods of the Mayan calendar and history broadly. But it's not, uh, his work is, is seminal, and so it's not detailed, it's not rationally thought through, you might say, it's not a systematic explanation. But still, I had, I had really, uh, not only had I read that book quite uh, deeply, but I had also made several trips down to the Yucatan when I was living in, in the States. And these trips were very much uh, really just about uh, immersing myself in the environment of these uh, ancient Mayan temple sites. I would meditate in this, uh, like in the uh, crypt of, of uh, where Pakal, Pakal was buried in, in the Temple of Inscriptions. I was be there hours and hours uh, just to soak in somehow what, what the stones were telling me. And um, um, so I had this, uh, uh, I, I think I had quite some uh, background in, in my body even uh, as to uh, the, the, the Mayan calendar structure and meaning. And, uh, but then it's, it's uh, again, coming back to my background as a, as a scientist, to me, it has to be verified. Otherwise, it just uh, uh, could be a anything. So what happened at that point was that uh, I, I went back to Sweden uh, and stayed there um, uh, working for uh, a full year. Uh, and uh, I started to think and uh, started to see uh, suddenly uh, the connections with Swedish history and uh, the Mayan calendar. And this was very important because if it was only uh, the Mayan history that somehow reflected their different time shifts, then you would never know because then it's, it would have been possible that this was sort of just self-fulfilling prophecies that they would be living out. Uh, in other words, <coughs> when you study the, the various uh, civilizations of, of Mesoamerica, of Mexico and Guatemala, you will find that they certainly undergo significant transformations at the most significant shifts between their time periods. But then the question is, is that just because they believed in that, or is it some kind of a more objective uh, factor that drives uh, these changes? And then I came back to, uh, to Sweden. So it dawned upon me that Basically, Sweden has, uh, you know, it's, it's been, most of its history, it's been a, sort of an insular uh, part of Europe, uh, remote in the north. Uh, but there are two times when uh, suddenly uh, people up from Scandinavia has been out and harassing uh, or terrorizing uh, people in, in uh, um, uh, other parts of Europe. And the first time is obviously, as, as uh, the English and the British Isles will, will know, is the, the Viking times. And the second time was in, in the early 1600s, in the Thirty Years' War. And uh, uh, in both these cases, it was sort of outpourings of, of a kind of violent and uh, expansive energies emerging from, uh, from the north of Europe, from from Sweden and from the other Scandinavian countries. And uh, 
other than that, uh, the, the Scandinavian countries have been playing minor roles, I would say, in, in the overall context of, of Europe. And then it dawned on, on me that these two times when these expansions would have taken place, uh, it, it, it coincided precisely with uh, two uh, Bakhtun shifts in the Mayan calendar. And then I felt, by that realization, I felt here is something tangible, here is something verifiable, and that's where I started to uh, disentangle uh, the whole thing, and, and uh, step by step I would go into all aspects of, of, uh, of our, our reality and see how it correlated uh, to the Mayan calendar. But then I felt there, there is something real here, it can be verified, it's, it's not just a fantasy, it, it's really so. We look at the pyramids, we look at society at the time of the Egyptian pyramids. We know that many similar buildings emerged throughout the world, particularly in South America. Is that correlation that you are talking about now, you're talking about later in history, you're talking about in the 1600s there. Is there a definite correlation, however, because we know with the pyramids, the um, symmetry, the architecture, the uh, uh, synergy with um, uh, the star systems and the, and the cosmos uh, is absolutely remarkable. And that was replicated exactly uh, in those civilizations in South America. The Mayan calendar is providing this set of correlations and these events throughout the world all the way from their period all the way through to the periods of the 1600s, the Renaissance, etc. That suggests very strongly, therefore, that civilizations, priests in whatever civilization, particularly if you're looking at the pyramids, are being taught. They have teachers. Would you agree with that assumption? Well, no. My, my answer would be no. But I should at the same time say that if you ask Mayan elders, uh, you know, for instance, like Don Alejandro, who is the uh, head of the Council of Elders, he, uh, his view uh, and uh, what he tells people is that there were teachers coming from the Pleiades to teach, uh, especially the Mayan people, but I think people all over the world, about uh, particular aspects of knowledge that they thought that the earth would would need. I would, you know, personally not share that view. Um, I think, um, I would not think of teachers in the sense of any kind of beings or, or, or persons. Uh, I think the teachers are really the energies, the cosmic energies that are coming in with a certain rhythm that the Mayan calendar describes. And uh, so teaching is coming from the cosmos, but in my view, it is not mediated through any kind of individuals. Uh, it is the cosmos as such that teaches us if we are in resonance with these energies that, that are coming in, changing our, 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 our civilizations, changing our, our ways of, of thinking, uh, and so forth. Uh, so I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not so much into individuals. I, I, I'm, I much prefer to talk about cosmic energies as influencing the way we think uh, about uh, the world. And of course, recently NASA has talked about very strong energies coming from the galactic core in 2013 that would uh, disrupt greatly uh, our communications that we have around the world. Is that something that is beyond the end of the Mayan calendar? Well, talk about the Mayan calendar maybe a little bit too much sometimes as if it is a set thing. And to begin with, over the time of the Mayan civilization, which spans um, 
maybe 1500 years or it all depends on how much you want to include you might say it spans 3000 years so regardless uh, their calendar system has undergone significant change and has had different characters and emphasized different calendars in different time periods and uh, we we have almost made it a habit to talk about the end of the Mayan calendar indeed there are dates in the Mayan calendar deep into the future also from our perspective and so they did not have the pers idea that it will come to an end it's not that simple it's a significant transformation we're up to Carl Kalaman, it has been a great pleasure talking to you today on this first of our two programs series. It has been extremely enjoyable. I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have, and I will certainly look forward to our next program together. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you have enjoyed this as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org or the dimensions.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one -on -one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.